rte.ie forward slash drama on one. So what do you want to hack for, Bickle? I can't sleep nights. This porn up there just for that. Yeah, I know. I tried that. So what do you do now? Uh, ride around nights mostly. Subways, buses. Figure, you know, I'm gonna do that. I might as well get paid for it. You wanna wake up town nights, South Bronx, Harlem? I work anytime, anywhere. Will you work Jewish holidays? Anytime, anywhere. We're talking to writer-director Paul Schrader about his career in film. Schrader first came to public attention when he wrote his screenplay to the 1976 film Taxi Driver, a tense tale following the journey of violent sociopath Travis Bickle. The film was Schrader's first collaboration with Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro. All three had experienced the loneliness and dislocation that drove the script along. You know, it's a mixture of... uh you know, personal problems, you know, at any given time, all of us are walking around with several problems that are bothering us, whether it be uh, parental or uh, sexual or um, problems of self-esteem. And then there's society as a whole. And somewhere between the two, a metaphor can occur. And you can see a way to define yourself, or rather define your problem through this metaphor in such a way that it will impact on others, uh, i.e. society. So the first inclination I had of this, and the first script I wrote, was uh, Taxi Driver. And at that time I was in uh, very much a, a depressed state and drifting around. I was not yet a uh, screenwriter uh, my marriage had broken up. I didn't have a place to live. And I had a pain in my stomach. I went to the hospital. I had an ulcer. I was 25, 26 years old. And while I was in the hospital, this image occurred to me of the taxi cab, of this man in an iron coffin moving through a crowd. You know, he looks like he's in the middle of people, but in fact, he's desperately alone. And so at that time, I saw the metaphor of the taxi cab as a way to take my problem, uh, which was loneliness, and incorporate it into a social context. You wrote that film very quickly. Would that be the norm for you? Uh, in general, yes. But I, I think scripts, you know, not novels, benefit by being written quickly because they occur in a, a limited time span, People can't get up and leave them. And the faster you write them, the more you feel close to what eventually will happen when it is seen. That said, it can be years before you actually write. An idea can gestate in various forms uh, for months, sometimes years. Often it will just go away. And it can proceed through a series of outlines a series of oral presentations to others. And finally, there comes a point where the idea either goes away or demands to be written. And when it demands to be written, then usually it comes quite quickly because now the idea itself is saying, you know, the time has come, let's go to work. This figure that you created of 
you conjured from that stomach ulcer in an emergency room in a hospital. Um, He's Travis Bickham. He's one of the iconic cinematic characters. But like a lot of your characters, in fact, like most of your characters, he's not a very sympathetic character. Sympathetic is a very freighted and ambiguous word. Uh, I don't know what you mean by sympathetic. Is sympathetic somebody who is a nice person or sympathetic somebody you identify with? Well, this is what are you trying? Are you trying to get an audience to identify with a character? Are you trying to get them to sympathize with a character? Or are you just trying to present a character and say to the audience, look, this is the character. There he is. There she is. Take them or leave them. Well, the audience will identify, particularly if the character is true and the character is interesting. One of the things I realize when writing Taxi Driver, I don't know if I realized it when I wrote it, but I realized it after, is that if you submit a viewer to one point of view, a monocular point of view, long enough, they will either leave the theater or start to identify. And if the character is interesting enough, they will just start perforce to identify because there's no other way to accept the experience they're having. So identifications start. And lo and behold, after the first hour, you have gotten an audience to start to identify with someone they would not normally consider worth identifying with. Now, the moment the audience, the viewer, gives you that license, saying, okay, we will go with you. We will imagine ourselves as this lonely boy. Then you can really start to do the stuff that art does in terms of exploration of people's uh, feelings, identifications, you know, fantasies. All my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. I believe that someone should become a person like other people. I first saw her at Palantine Campaign Headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mass. She is alone. They cannot touch her. With Taxi Driver, at what point did Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro then become involved in the project? Well, after I wrote it, I left the city of Los Angeles, drifted around for a better part of a year, just pulling myself together. Then I came back and started writing criticism again, and uh, I met Brian De Palma doing an interview, and Brian, we started playing chess, and he introduced me to Marty. And, and out of that, and of course several years, Scorsese and De Niro and I decided that this script should be done. We were all sort of young bloods at the time, and it took a while to get it financed. We all had to meet a certain measure of success before the film got financed. Marty had a successful film. Bob won an Oscar. I sold uh, some other scripts. And it became possible to finance the film. Now, we never talked a great deal about that script. In retrospect, uh, given the way actors and directors go over things again and again, I'm 
sort of surprised how little or how few conversations we had. And I think that uh, we all just knew this guy. We knew this Bickle guy. And we knew him in our bones. And I think probably the reason that the film has endured is that it was uh, the real deal. It was absolutely how Marty was feeling and Bob was feeling and I was feeling. It was not, you know, a, a put-on experience, which is probably why we never really talked about it. And were you worried about the reaction that there would be to this film? I mean, for, aside from anything else, aside altogether from the Travis Bigel character, the fact that it had a an, an underage prostitute. Well, you know, it was a different time. Uh, that was not seen, at least in, in my eyes, as such a, you know, shocking thing. It was a time of, you know, nude theater and wife-swapping explorations, and society wasn't quite as hypocritical about those matters as it is at the moment. So I didn't think that was a real danger, no. I worry you detached from the project once the cameras began to roll, as seems to be the, the Hollywood tradition, or were you still involved? I was there through pre-production in New York. But, you know, once the film starts, if the director and the actor don't have a firm handle on it, you're in trouble. And if they do have a firm handle on it, you're just an observer. And it was, at that point, Bob and Marty's movie, and I had other things to do, uh, direct my own uh, film. Mm. So it was time to um, leave. I mean, I would stay in phone contact, but there was no reason for me to be on the set. Now, you've written that screenplays are not works of art. They are invitations to others to collaborate on a work of art. So how much of the resulting film of Taxi Driver is Schrader? How much is Scorsese? How much is De Niro, would you think? Well, Marty, of the first three films that we collaborated on, Scorsese feels that Taxi Driver is more me and that... Raging Bull is more De Niro, and Last Temptation of Christ is more him. Did you go along with that? Yeah, I think that's sort of true. Uh, There's no way I could have directed Taxi Driver in a fashion as well as Marty did. Certainly not at that time, and probably not even at this time. And things like the the famous De Niro scene where he's standing in front of the mirror and he goes through the you looking at me, that was uh, improvisation, for example. So that's pure De Niro, isn't it? Well... You know, it's in the script that he talks to himself in the mirror and asks himself questions. So he has an instruction. Now, at that point, sometimes it's useful just to let the actor come up with that question. And even if you write it out for them, they'll probably come up with another one just to make it fresher for them. So I I didn't actually write out that question. And Bob picked it up from a, a comic at that time who would walk around and walk up to people and say, you know, you looking at me? There's a shot in the film where Travis Bickle actually sights his gun on a girl in a gun store. And I think that was, in a sense, it was inspired. It was something that Scorsese himself put in, but it was inspired by you, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, At that time, the time I wrote the script, and after I had a bit of a gun fetish, uh, which was... uh, more adolescent than anything else. But that shot, if I remember right, is from Hitchcock. And I forget which Hitchcock film, but that's a direct 
You can call it a lift. You can call it a reference. You can call it an homage. But that's from a Hitchcock film, and I forget. You know, I am sure some of your viewers will know which one it is. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't come from, and there was a, a story that uh, you and, it comes from actually from John Melius talking to Scorsese about an incident with you in a in a gun store. Yeah, but I think when it comes to Marty, the film reference will always trump the personal reference. Raging Bull then, that was De Niro's obsession, wasn't it? This is something that he wanted to make. Yes. And he did, wasn't really able to get it made until you actually wrote the script. Well, there had been a script, and uh, they couldn't get it financed. I was directing at the time, and Bob came and asked me if I would uh, look at it. And the original script that Martin had written was based on Jake LaMotta's autobiography. Now, Jake LaMotta had cut his brother out of his autobiography because he didn't like his brother. And therefore, the script didn't have much drama in it. It was just a lot of boxing. So I started researching it, and one of the first things I found out was about the fighting LaMotta brothers, Jake and Joey. And suddenly, there I was in a sibling relationship. And I knew how to handle that. And so I rewrote the film as a sibling film. And it was that element that gave it a uh, commercial life. There's a narrator in a film you made, Affliction, who says, in telling this story, I tell my own story as well. In in that, in Raging Bull, were you telling the story about your relationship between you and your brother Leonard, the screenwriter? Yeah, I don't know if that's avoidable. Obviously, if you have, in my case, a single male sibling, it's almost impossible to write one of those stories without referencing uh, your own life. You know, whether you're doing Cain and Abel or East of Eden, it's always it's going to come down to uh, you and your brother, you know, in the den. Now, when it came to The Last Temptation of Christ, you know, I think you would be of the opinion that, in a sense, art and religion are kind of going, and you even referred to it at the beginning of the interview, going along parallel tracks. Uh, in The Last Temptation of Christ in, Christ, in a sense, those tracks are, you would expect those tracks to converge, wouldn't you? I think that art can perform as as a passage in the same way that uh, uh, religion or meditation can uh, perform as a passage to um, to quietude and insight and awareness. The whole issue gets very muddled when you talk about Last Temptation of Christ because you have a, a very humanist premise underneath that film, uh, which is driving it, which is the Kazantzakis premise that Christ struggles a metaphor for the human struggle. And that lifts the film from being a kind of religious passage to a much more human film, a much more film about the individual man rather than spiritual awareness. But it also, in the process, offends and did offend a lot of people because of that representation of Christ as being very, very human. Yes, there was bound to be some controversy because there was controversy around the book. Uh, the book had been banned by the Catholic Church. I I was surprised how much controversy it did pick up, and uh, we fell into what is now known as the culture wars, where certain objects become totemic in culture and represent a much bigger battle than the objects themselves. Now, this can be flag burning, it can be gay marriage, it can be divorce, abortion, any number of these social issues. I mean, I really don't know anyone who's threatened by gay marriage. However, there are people who will go 
to the battlefield over this issue because it represents symbolically a control of the culture. And that film became a symbol of who controlled the culture. Therefore, the battle was enjoined by many people who had not even seen the film because the film itself was uh, immaterial to the argument, does Hollywood control the culture or do we? Why was it that after that film you didn't work with Scorsese until relatively recently and uh, with Bringing Out the Dead? Well, I thought three was three. You know, I, I thought three was a good number and and I was making my own films and you know, Marty was making his films and uh, I didn't think we would work together again. And then he asked me to do Bringing Out the Dead. Were there any issues about control and uh, on credits, for example, any of that? No, no. I mean, there was... Uh, sort of dispute over the credits that was resolved by arbitration. But I don't think that was the issue. I think it's just, you know, what happens when you meet any measure of success, you start to build different communities. And I was in my own kind of community and, and Marty was in his. And, uh, and, and certainly it becomes much harder for someone like Scorsese to hire me as a writer when I have a body of work as director because I'm harder to fire, I'm harder to insult, I'm harder to push around, and at some point it just gets easier to get a more malleable uh, collaborator. So why did you get back together then with uh, Bringing Out the Dead? Well, he asked me, and uh, if he asked me again tomorrow, I'd say yes. But I'm not expecting that call, and I'm not uh, sending him anything saying, let's do this. And is bringing out the dead in, in any sense as sort of a blackly comic take of on your part or on both of your parts on Taxi Driver? Instead of a taxi driver, you've got an ambulance driver, and it's very, very black. It's 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 funny, but it's black. Yeah, well, you you have again, you have a man who's going mad. Uh, only this time, he's on the side of the angels rather than uh, on the side of the psychopaths. My reservation about that film which I voiced at the time, is I just felt that Nick Cage was too old. I, I felt the actor should have been at least 10 years younger. And, you know, if you're going to have a nervous breakdown as a paramedic, that's a breakdown you have in your early 20s. By the time you get in your 30s, you've either figured out how to do that job or you have another job. And so I always felt the film was held back by the fact that Nick seemed too mature to be going through what he was going through. And do you think he was cast because in many senses he would be seen as the alter ego of Robert De Niro, that he would be the next generation, but that he no, would be I, a lighter version of De Niro? No, I think he was cast purely for um, budgetary reasons. Uh, so the, the film would, would sell, basically, for marketing reasons subsequently. Well, so that there could be an ample budget. And so therefore, from your point of view, it wasn't a particularly satisfying experience or was it something you enjoyed writing? Well, I enjoyed writing it. And I like the way Marty made it. Uh, I just felt uh, then and I felt now that it should have been a kid. Uh, we haven't talked much about your directing. The Exorcist, now you were, you were, you were called in to, to film The Exorcist and it was a, a very unusual in the sense that the script was already done and uh, the, you know, pretty much everything was in place. Just explain how that actually came about. Well, John Frankenheimer was going to do it. John got sick. I was asked to do it. Three months later, John was dead and I was on, on the set. It was a very kind of classy production. And by the time we finished, the man who had financed it 
came to realize he had made a mistake and had made something that was not exploitive enough. And he tried to rectify that situation, and he realized that the only way to rectify it was to rewrite it. So he had the script rewritten, had it recast, hired a new director, reached in his other pocket, pulled out another $35 million, and made a second film. It's a very unique situation in film history. That second film, directed by Rennie Harlan, was released last year under the title Exorcist The Beginning. I have struggled to get the film I made into final shape, and it was given a token release in the U.S. two or three weeks ago. It'll be out on DVD, I would imagine, about two months from now. It's called Dominion. I know it's going to play in Benelux in July. I know it's going to be at Edinburgh. I don't know anything more about a a U.K. or Irish release. Mm. Um, but it is a very unique situation. It's, it's it's an incredible situation because you basically have the same material, and it's the, it's it's. I mean, as far as uh, film studies would be concerned, it would be a very interesting little contretemps to be able to put the two of them together and compare and contrast. Yes, I mean, I think at uh, some point uh, uh, it'll be very interesting to do that. Uh, we haven't quite come to that point because uh, there are. Uh, egos involved here and uh, it was even very very difficult to get my film released at all because it implied some sort of mistake that might have been made and the manner in which it was released was very low profile you know just trying to get some money out of the DVD. And what did you think of the Rennie Harlan version? Well it was interesting because I went and saw it with William Blatty who had written the original Exorcist book and Blatty had also made an Exorcist movie, Exorcist Three, for the same company, and they had taken away his film. So when he saw Rennie's film, he got very depressed, and all of his bad feelings came to the surface. And by the end of the film, he was cussing and swearing. I was sitting next to him, and I kept feeling better and better because I was looking at Rennie's film, and I was saying, you know, this is really bad. And if this gets much worse, maybe somebody will want to see my film. And so I walked out feeling that I, I think there's a shot I can get my films. You know, it's a terrible thing when you, you know, spend uh, several years making a film, completing a film the way you want it, and then have it sort of disappear into the mist. Just to explain, it's it's based on the Max von Sydow character in the original Exorcist. It's set, I think, back in the 1940s, and it involves another possession story and another exorcism. And uh, but I mean, it, it was I think the way you shot it, it was very it, you know it was like it was a Paul Schrader movie. It was character driven. It certainly wasn't effects driven. Yeah, I mean that I didn't write the script. Caleb Carr, an American novelist, wrote the script. Uh, but it was meant to be essentially a kind of serious piece about loss of faith and the devil and these issues, not driven by the current uh, kind of video game mentality of horror. It was conceived of and executed as a rather old-fashioned movie. Paul Trader, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. rta.ie forward slash Drama on one.